All right, you are going to need a Bible. You'd probably want to open to the book of 1 Kings. Most of the passages that we're going to look at tonight are in the book of 1 Kings. We're talking about Jeroboam. Last week we talked about Rehoboam. And I did not go back and listen to how many times I said the wrong name. I'm certain I said the wrong name at some point last week, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. And I'm certain that I'm going to say the wrong name at some point tonight. So I apologize in advance. As we're studying about the kings, I think it's helpful each week just to put them in a little bit of historical, biblical context and to talk about the history of the leaders of Israel leading up to these kings. And so we talked about these names last week. We're going to just reference them quickly each week. Moses was the first leader of the nation of Israel. He led the people out of Egypt into the wilderness. He did not get to lead them into the promised land, but he's absolutely one of the most unique, remarkable leaders in all of Israel's history. He is a prophet. He is a deliverer. He is a political figure. He is a military figure. He never gets referred to as a king But I mentioned this last week, when you just look at the way that Moses functioned in Israel, he was the man. And there were challenges to him, there was opposition to him at times, but really the buck stopped with Moses. He was the lawgiver. He was followed by Joshua. Joshua was a godly man, he was a general, he was the one that Moses prepared on the plains of Moab to lead the people into the promised land. He led them in, he won the battles, he divided the land, and then he went off to a nice retirement in his territory. On the heels of Moses and then Joshua, everything goes to pot, and the judges take over. And the judges are just an absolute mess. At their very, very finest, they are flawed leaders. I was reading this morning in my personal Bible reading, just sort of reading through uh, the Bible plan I'm at. I read about this morning one of the very last judges. He's not in the book of Judges. He's in the book of 1 Samuel, and his name is Eli. And he is terrible. He is an absolutely horrible, horrible man, a horrible father, a horrible individual. You read his story, and it comes to the end, and it says he was the one judging Israel. And you think, well, no wonder everything's so terrible, because Eli was an absolute train wreck. The last judge was a godly judge, the godliest of all of them when you compare them, and that's Samuel. Samuel was the one that the people came to and said, we want a king like all the other peoples around us. And a lot of times we tell that story and say, oh, that was bad of the people. They were not supposed to want a king. God was supposed to be their king. And there is a sense, when you read the story, there is a sense in which they rejected God as being king over them. There's another sense in which God knew that they would want a king, and he knew that they would need a king. They would need somebody to lead them, just like all the other nations around them had people to lead them. And that's why we read Deuteronomy 17. God said, this is what the king needs to do. This is what he needs to be like. I'm going to pick the king. You're going to affirm this. And these are the things that the king should do and should not do. And so Saul is the first king, and he starts off pretty good, and then he just nosedives. David takes over. We spent months studying the life of David. It's just a roller coaster. It's great, it's bad. It's great for a while, it's bad. And then at some point, it just kind of stays, eh. It's just not the greatest ending to the story of David. Solomon takes over, and everything's great at first, and then it really nosedives 
and it gets really bad, and we're going to talk about part of that story tonight. After Solomon, there's a civil war, essentially. There's a division, and the division is between Judah in the south, and Rehoboam leads Judah in the south. We talked about him last week. Jeroboam is the first king of Israel in the north. And so the nation splits into two. You now have what we call the divided kingdom. And these two kings are just bound up together, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. You can't talk about one without talking about the other, really. And we talked about last week Rehoboam, and we tried to keep Jeroboam out of it. This week we're going to talk about Jeroboam, and we're going to try to keep Rehoboam out of it. But their stories are just completely completely intertwined. So that's the history leading up to uh, tonight as we talk about Jeroboam. When you think about Jeroboam, this is a story of wasted opportunity. Wasted opportunity. As I was preparing this message, I thought, wasted opportunity. We've all experienced that in life. What's going on in the world right now that would fall under the category of wasted opportunity? So I did a Google News search and just started reading news articles, mostly headlines, but some of the articles to say, what are people talking about when it comes to wasted opportunities? Lots of articles about sports, okay? It's baseball season, means it's nap season. And so people are talking about baseball games saying, oh, you know, the Rangers or the Astros or the Rockies or the whoever you like, they had a chance to win the game at the end, but they left runners stranded on the bases, and it was such a wasted opportunity. And we're going to talk about wasted opportunity when football rolls around. We're going to say, oh, college football, somebody's going to lose week one. We're going to say, well, that's it. You're out. It was a wasted opportunity. Your season's functionally over. Thanks for playing. We'll see you next year. And we'll get to the NFL, and we'll get down to the playoffs, and somebody will be close to getting in, and they'll have a chance to win a game, and they'll say, oh, it was a wasted opportunity. They should have won that game. They could have moved up in the standings. So lots of things about sports. Lots of stuff, obviously, about politics. Stuff about passing bills and legislation. It was a wasted opportunity. They could have passed this, but they just passed this instead or they passed nothing instead. And people pontificating, saying it was a wasted opportunity to quote-unquote get something done. A lot of articles in the realm of politics saying it was a wasted opportunity to demonize, my word, not theirs, but to demonize your political opponent. Like you had them sitting right there on the tee, all you had to do was smack them, and you missed the chance, and it was a wasted opportunity to take an easy shot uh, at somebody that's on the other side of the aisle. A lot of military stories. I don't think that surprises you. People talking about Iraq and Afghanistan and the war on terror and all that sort of stuff saying, man, it's wasted opportunities. People from all sorts of perspectives saying, could have done this, it could have been this, it could have gone this way, it could have gone that way. Lots of stuff about wasted opportunities. And believe it or not, there was a lot of stories about culture war type issues. And I'll give you just one example. Disney released a movie not long ago called Luca. And I don't know if you've watched it or not. It's a cute little movie. It's great. There was a lot of people chattering online, news stories, talking about how Luca was a wasted opportunity to push the LGBTQ agenda and to have a lead character in a Disney movie who was homosexual, and people were saying, that was your shot, the story was perfect, you should have done it, it was a complete wasted opportunity, and people are just completely outraged that Disney would not have taken that opportunity 
to push that agenda. So lots of stories about that. Now, as I say this over and over and over again, wasted opportunity. I imagine that in the back of your mind, you're thinking and you're remembering things. Maybe you're thinking back to high school or to college or uh, earlier in life and you're thinking about, you know, I, that was a wasted opportunity. That was a situation where I should have done this and I didn't do it. Maybe to share the gospel with somebody. I had an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and I didn't take it. And I look back and think that that's a wasted opportunity. Or maybe you look back at a time when the Lord had blessed you in a particular way and your sin sort of changed the direction of things in your life. And you look back not on something you didn't do, but something you did do. And you say, man, that's a wasted opportunity. The Lord had put me in this position and something I did, something I decided to do, turned the course of my life. And we look back on things and we think about wasted opportunities. The story of Jeroboam, I hate to be a bummer, but it's a wasted opportunity story. And I hate to be a double bummer, there's nothing really spectacular in the story. It's kind of a boring story. I mean, we're going to walk through it. We're going to walk through parts of it really quickly. There's nothing just like David and Goliath, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There's none of that kind of stuff. It's just an incredible opportunity put right in front of Jeroboam, and he just completely flushes it down the toilet and wastes this opportunity. It's a sad, sad story about things that he should have done and things that he should not have done. So let's talk about Jeroboam in the Bible. And I want to make a point that I didn't make last week. Uh, I have a little bit more time tonight, and so I want to make this point about the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Okay, when you're studying these kings, these are your go-to books. You're going to read Kings and you're going to read Chronicles. In the Jewish canon, we talked about this a few months ago on Wednesday nights. Kings are a combined book. It's just kings, not first and second. It's just kings, and chronicles is just chronicles. They combine them. But in the English tradition, we split them up. We have first and second kings and first and second chronicles. When you read these books, it's a little bit like reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Like you come to some parts and you say, oh, I've read this before. And then you come to other parts and you say, I've read this, but that's not exactly how I remembered it in the other spot. And then you come to some parts of the story and you say, well, that's completely new information. I'm working on one of our future Wednesday nights. And Kings leaves out a bunch of interesting stuff that Chronicles later comes back and fills in. So these are not contradictory accounts of the kings. They are complementary accounts of the lives of the kings. First and second kings were written first, historically. First and second kings tell the story back and forth about Judah and Israel. It's just this bounce back and forth. Judah this, Israel this, and you try to follow the timeline all the way through. And the books of first and second kings seem to be written to tell the people or show the people or remind the people, this is why you both got sent into exile. This is why Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom. This is why Babylon came and conquered the southern kingdom. You're both wicked, sinful, idolatrous people. That seems to be the point of First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles was written later. There's almost no mention of Israel. All the emphasis, almost all the emphasis is just on Judah. And most Bible scholars think First and Second Chronicles were written to remind the people who they really are while they're in exile 
and they're getting ready to come back to the land. So kings say, look, you're a bunch of idiots. And this is why the Lord sent you into exile. And then Chronicles comes along and it tells the same story, but Chronicles is saying, but don't forget, God has disciplined you as his people, but you're his people. And he's promised to bring you back to the land. And so very similar accounts, but different in some respects. So let's talk about Jeroboam. The first time we meet Jeroboam in the Bible, it's in the context of God's judgment on Solomon. God's judgment on Solomon. So if you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, last week we read most of verse 1 to 8. 1 Kings 11, 1 to 8 talks about Solomon and all of his wives and all of his gold and all of his horses. And you read it and you say, did he never read Deuteronomy 17? Don't get a bunch of horses. Don't get too much gold. Don't have a harem of women. Don't do that stuff. And then you read it and he just does all of those things. And you say, well, this is going to end badly. These ladies ask for shrines. He builds them. He begins to worship at these shrines. They, they turn his heart from the Lord. And so just look what we read in 1 Kings 11, verse 9. It says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I'll give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Look at verse 14. God is angry with Solomon. He starts to raise up what the text calls adversaries. So verse 14, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, and his name was Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house of Edom. And then if you look over at verse 23, here's another one. God also raised up as an adversary to him, Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, had a desert king of Zobah. And then if you jump down again to verse 26, it says, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon. Remember the Lord said, I'm going to give the kingdom to one of your servants. Well, here's Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, the servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow. He also lifted up his hand against the king. Now it's interesting because Solomon was originally smitten with this guy. He liked Jeroboam. In fact, he gave him a very important position. He put him over all the forced labor in a frame. He was sort of the the mob boss, the taskmaster. He was the job foreman. He was the, the boss man. He told people where to go and what to do And people listened to him, and he worked for Solomon. Now, I'm going to go through this part quickly. We're not going to read all these verses, but we're going to move quick. Through a prophet named Ahijah, God promised to give Jeroboam the northern tribes. You can read that in 1126 to 37. Jeroboam was not looking for this. He was just a working man. He worked for Solomon. He was one of his servants. And the Lord sends this prophet, and the prophet says, hey, God's going to give you a kingdom. That's interesting. God presented Jeroboam with a remarkable opportunity, there's our word, opportunity, if he would listen to the Lord. 
and the opportunities in verse 38 and 39, God says, if you will listen to all that I command you and you will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant, did. Did David keep the commandments and the statutes perfectly? No. Did God expect Jeroboam to be completely sinless and never to disobey? No. But he said, look, David was faithful to me. Solomon has not been faithful. He's chasing after all these other gods. If you will do what David did, verse 39, he says, or 38, at the end of 38, he says, I'll be with you and I'll build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Now look, this is a kind of thing where the prophet comes along and he's speaking for the Lord and he says, if you will listen, God will be with you and he will build you a house like he built David. He's not talking about a physical house, he's talking about a dynasty. This is the kind of thing, I imagine the prophet looked at Jeroboam and said, these kind of opportunities don't come around very often. Maybe you've heard that at a used car lot. These kind of opportunities don't come along very often. You're going to want to snatch this one up. Maybe you've heard it in a timeshare meeting, right? They're trying to close the sale. Listen to me. This deal will not be available tomorrow. This sort of thing does not come around very often. People get told that with jobs, right? Somebody's trying to get somebody to take a particular job, and the person's kind of on the fence. I don't know. And they say, look, this kind of opportunity doesn't come around very often. You better take it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. We say it in all those, look, there's a million used cars, not right now, but someday they'll be back. There's all sorts of cars out there. Deals come around. They're always going to be selling timeshares. They're always going to be selling a plan to get you out of timeshares. There's always another job. We don't mean it in any of these cases, but this is pretty unique, right? You work for the king, and the prophet shows up and says, God's going to give you a kingdom. You're a servant. God's going to make you a king. All you got to do is listen, do what he says, follow the example of David. And if you do that, God's going to be with you. He's going to be with you. He's going to build you a house. He's going to make you into a dynasty just like he did to David. This is a unique, a remarkable opportunity. Solomon found out about it. He didn't like it. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. Solomon's not in a good place at the end of his life. Jeroboam escaped to Egypt and he lived in exile. I imagine Jeroboam in Egypt is thinking, this is bizarre. I had a good job. God promised me a kingdom, something great, and now I'm a refugee in a foreign nation. That's a big turn of events in your life. So he's living in Egypt. Solomon dies. Rehoboam becomes king and Jeroboam returns to Israel. And we talked about Rehoboam becoming king. You'll remember when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, when he took the throne, there was a dispute about the forced labor in Israel. You remember what Jeroboam's job was as he was servant for Solomon? He's over the forced labor. And all of this ties together right here. When Rehoboam rejects the request of his subjects and the advice of his advisors, the northern tribes seceded and they made Jeroboam 
the new king. And so I just want to show you this in the text quickly. Some of this we read last week. 1 Kings 12, 12. Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had said, come see me again on the third day. Why is Jeroboam their spokesman? It's because he's the foreman. He's the guy they all used to work work for before he had to run away, run for his life, and take refuge in Egypt. So they all come back. They're waiting for this answer. There's all this middle school nonsense about my pinky and thighs and scorpions. We talked about all that last week. Verse 15, the king did not listen to the people. It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And we talked about the prophet coming and making these promises. Verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tent, so Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. Verse 17, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And if you jump down to verse 20, it says, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and they made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. So now Jeroboam has gone from servant to refugee in Egypt to looks like he's gonna be the foreman and the lead negotiator for the trade union. That falls through, you're the king. God has kept his promise in a most strange and most unique way. So you're king. What do you do? This is what he does. Number one, he builds Shechem, the city of Shechem. You can read about that in 1 Kings 12, 25. We talked about Shechem last week when Rehoboam set up and planned his inaugural ceremony to be installed as king. He did not do it in Jerusalem. He did it in Shechem. He went up north, and he went to a place where there wasn't a city at all. There was just an empty field. And he said, this is where I'm going to be inaugurated. And he thought all these people would come, and all the tribes up in the north would love him for having this big inaugural party up in their territory, not down south in Jerusalem. The whole thing goes south, and when Jeroboam becomes the king, this is a total power play. Where is he going to settle? Well, I'm going to go to the place that Rehoboam tried to take the throne, Shechem. And he goes to Shechem and he builds a city. So he's trying to show his dominance over his rival. Jeroboam is worried, okay? He's trying to flex, but he's scared and he's worried that his dynasty will not reign over Israel forever. He's concerned. If you go back to 1139, This is part of God's promise to him. I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Not forever. That last little phrase stuck in his mind. Not forever. And he's worried. And he's thinking, just how long am I going to be king? Just how great is this house that God says he's going to build for me? Look at chapter 12, verse 26. In verse 27, Jeroboam said in his heart, the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me, and they'll return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. 
in ancient Israel, you always went up to Jerusalem. North, south, east, west, you went up because it was up in elevation. So he's actually saying they're going to go down south, up in elevation. They're going to go celebrate the Passover. They're going to go celebrate tabernacles. They're going to go for the Day of Atonement. They're going to go for all these feasts. And while they're there, Rehoboam's going to be in their ear. Jerusalem's an impressive city. They're going to ditch me. They're going to go back. And so this is where he completely flushes his whole opportunity down the toilet. First thing he did is build a city in Shechem. The second thing he did was establish a northern cult. A northern cult. You can read about this in chapter 12, 28 to 33, and we're going to look at some of it. He sets up two golden calf idols. He looks at his rivals in Judah and he says, they have one temple, one place where they go to worship. I don't want my people to go there. I want to be bigger and better. So we're going to have two places. Builds two golden calf idols. He puts one in Bethel and he puts one in Dan. And he looks around and he has a problem because there's no Levites in his territory anymore. We talked about this last week. When Rehoboam took the throne in Judah, all the Levites said, hey, we're out of here. We're going with, with them. Remember, they didn't have an inheritance. They're just sprinkled all over the place. But they say, we're going with the line of David. We're not going with this upstart. So all the Levites leave. So Jeroboam looks around and he basically says, who wants to be a priest? All you had to do was raise your hand. I want to be a priest. Okay, you're a priest. I'll be a priest. Okay, you're a priest. You can go to Bethel. You can go to Dan. They pick teams. They number off one, two, one, two. I don't know how they do it, but they just gets all brand new priests, and he sends half of them to Bethel and half of them to Dan. This is the king of Israel returning to Israel's original sin. This is Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog returning to his vomit is a fool returning to his folly. Right? This is Aaron at the bottom of Mount Sinai when Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments saying, I'm kind of scared that the people are going to just go crazy, so let's get the gold and build this idol and we'll call it Yahweh and everybody can worship this thing. Right? Moses is getting the Ten Commandments. Aaron is breaking the first two. Worshiping a false god and worshiping an idol is not who they were supposed to worship and it is not how they were supposed to worship. And do you remember what we read in Deuteronomy 17 a minute ago? Right? Don't, don't get a bunch of women. Don't get a bunch of gold. Don't get a bunch of horses. Don't, don't, don't. Do write a copy of this law, right? No Xerox machine. No total office solution to get you a great deal on a copier. So you get your pen out and you get the parchment, whatever, and you're going to handwrite it down. You're going to write a copy of the law. If Jeroboam had done that, he would have passed right through Exodus 20. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And he would have had to write, you will not worship any other gods but the Lord your God. And you will not bow down to or make any idols. One and two, he would have wrote, written them down. And you know what? If he would have kept writing like he was supposed to, he would have come to Deuteronomy 5 and he would have wrote the Ten Commandments out all over again a second time. 
Do not worship anyone but Yahweh, the Lord your God, and do not worship idols. But he doesn't do what God tells him to do, and he sets up this idolatrous system of worship. Look at verse 31. He made temples on high places, and he appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. So all the Levites left. They didn't want anything to do with him as king. They didn't want anything to do with his idolatry. They all went to Jerusalem, so he's just picking people to serve as priest. Look at verse 33. It says, he went up the altar that he made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and he went up to the altar to make offerings. He also takes on the job of a priest. I'm going to be a king and a priest. And forget the Passover, forget all the other days, Day of Atonement, all the other things you're supposed to celebrate. I'm just going to make up new holidays. We have new holidays, new sacrifices. I'm going to be involved. You can be involved. And we're going to have these two idols in Dan and Bethel. And we're going to build all these high places. It's all a, it's all a joke. It is Jeroboam taking the opportunity that God gave to him and completely wasting it. So move on in the story. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Jeroboam. The Lord sent prophets to prophesy about coming judgment. He didn't leave him without a warning. The Lord could have just said, that's it, I'm done with you. Send a plague, send an army. But he sent a prophet. He sent a prophet because he wanted Jeroboam to repent. David sinned, right? David did terrible stuff. God sent Nathan and David repented. So Jeroboam's done something really stupid. And God, you think the Old Testament is filled with God being angry and cranky and losing his cool with everybody. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is merciful and he is patient. And he gives this man, a slave, Jeroboam, a kingdom, and he flushes it down the toilet and God says, I'm going to send you a prophet. And the prophets come and they warn him about you're going down the wrong road. You're headed towards judgment. Look at chapter 13, 1 Kings 13, verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. He made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priest of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Look down at chapter 14. There's another prophet sent. And you pick up in verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger. You have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel and will burn up the house of Jeroboam. Remember, he said, I'll build it. I'll build you a house. Now God says he's gonna burn the whole thing down as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. It's a wasted opportunity. Two prophets show up here. There's also a prophet named Hosea who was sent. There's also a prophet named Amos who was sent. Both of them are ignored. So after 22 years as king, Jeroboam is killed in a battle against Judah. You can read about that in Kings and Chronicles. What's interesting is 
is Kings tells you that he died in the battle. Chronicles looks back many years later, and do you know what Chronicles says? It says the Lord struck him down. Both of those things are true. Humanly speaking, you look at it, and he died in a battle. Some soldier shot an arrow, pulled his sword, something happened on a human level. He died in the battle. But from the cosmic level, from the divine perspective, God was behind all of it, working out his plans and his purposes, and God says that he was the one who struck him down. Jeroboam's son, Nadab, succeeded Jeroboam, succeeded, and he reigned two years before Basha rebelled and destroyed the entire house of Jeroboam. All of the males cut off just like the Lord said. Jeroboam's sin became a pattern for all the kings of Israel. That brings us to the application question. Like I told you, it's a sad story. It's a terrible story. It's God doing something amazing in somebody's life, putting a remarkable opportunity right in front of them, and that person completely wasting it. It's a complete wasted opportunity. So what do we learn from Jeroboam's life and reign as king of Judah? Number one, told you we were going to talk about this a lot this fall. Sin always has consequences. Always has consequences. You and I, in our own lives, think that we can escape those consequences. We think that no one else is going to know about the thing that we're doing or the thing that we're harboring in our heart. We think that we'll be able to get away with something. It's not going to be that bad. We'll be able to manage the, the conflict or the fallout or the whatever. But sin always has consequences. Jeroboam's sin had consequence. The consequence for him, if you look at 1 Chronicles 13, 20, excuse me, 2 Chronicles 13, 20, is that the Lord struck him down, killed him. He used a human army to do it from Judah, but the Lord was behind that. Look at what happened in 1 Kings 15. There was also a consequence for his family. People often say to me, if I had known this is what would happen to my family, I would have never done that thing in the first place. Well, 1 Kings 15, verse 29, talks about Basha. As soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed till he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. You know, we talked about this with Zedekiah as we've been going through the book of Jeremiah. Zedekiah's life ends horrifically. Absolutely horrifically. Zedekiah is in his 30s, and he finally gets captured by the king of Babylon, and they take him to Riblah where Nebuchadnezzar can pass sentence on Zedekiah, and he slaughters Zedekiah's sons right in front of him. 30-year-old man. You can do the math on how old those boys were. I imagine for the rest of his blind life, because the next thing that happened is they popped his eyes out. For the rest of his blind life, he thought, if I had known that's what would happen to my boys and I would have to see it as the last thing I ever saw on earth, I never would have done all those things. I would have listened to Jeremiah. That's the way sin works. You rebel against the Lord. You don't listen to his word. You reject his warnings. You spurn his patience. You sin, and there are always consequences, consequences for you, consequences for your family, and in this case, consequences for the nation. Look at 2 Kings, jump ahead a book, 2 Kings 17. This is the exile 
of the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam's kingdom, finally being taken out into exile. 2 Kings 17, look at verse 21. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And what's the reason given by the author of 2 Kings? It goes all the way back to Jeroboam. Now, there's plenty of other people to blame. The people were to blame and the other kings were to blame. And we're going to talk about some of those kings. But this is when they get taken. And the author says, you know, it really goes all the way back to Jeroboam. The path that he charted impacted him and his family and generation after generation after generation after generation. Most of us don't think about that when we're giving ourselves over to sin. We don't stop and think, how is this sin, how could this sin impact my great, 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 great grandkids? You don't stop and think about that. What you think is, he's going to know. It's just a small thing. I can manage it. There's people doing a lot worse out there. Sin always has consequences. Secondly, We must worship the right God the right way. 1 Kings 12, verse 33. We read this a minute ago, but I just want you to hear it. The Levites leave. He's afraid that everybody's going to go to Jerusalem for the feasts and just go back to David. So he sets up the idols in Bethel and Dan, sets up a new priesthood. 1 Kings 12, 33, he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month in the month that he had devised from his own heart. This was heartfelt worship. This was worship from the heart. Came from his heart. You and I get told all the time, follow your heart, listen to your heart. Jeremiah says, your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. It is beyond understanding. Whatever you do, don't listen to your heart. Don't listen to your heart. That's what Jeroboam did. He listened to his heart. He said, you know, we need a couple of idols. We need some high places. We need a priesthood. We can't do the same holidays that they do. We've got to have a whole all-new holiday schedule. I know that in Judah the kings couldn't be priests, but we're in Israel, not Judah. And so I know I'm the king, but I'm also going to be a priest, and I'm going to go up. All that's from his heart. Right? He dreams it up. He thinks it up. There is a theme that runs through the Bible from the story of Cain and Abel all the way through the book of Revelation that says this, God cares about who you worship and he cares about how you worship. And he has never asked his people to be novel or creative when it comes to worship. Churches in the United States do not believe this. Churches in the United States think, well, as long as the Bible says not to do it, it would probably be okay to do it. 
So it doesn't say don't do this and don't have that and don't work that in. So I think it's okay for us to do it. That's missing the biblical theme from Cain and Abel and the sacrifices that they brought all the way through the book of Revelation where the Bible says you've got to worship the right God and you've got to worship him the way that he tells you to worship. People didn't like it in Moses' day. Who says Moses is the only prophet? Who says Moses is the only one that God's going to use to speak to us? They hated that. Well, tough. You don't get to decide how you want to worship God. Aaron, you don't get to make idols. God gets to tell you, only worship him, and this is how you worship. It's a very popular thing today for churches to have someone on staff that has something about the word creative in their title connected to worship. I promise you, we will have worship leaders, worship pastors, song leaders, whatever. We will not have create. We are not creative. When it comes to worship, we're not trying to be creative. Nobody's trying to be creative. We're not trying to innovate. We're not trying to come up with, no one has ever done this. This will be so great. If you come up with an idea for worship that no one has ever done, don't do it. It's not the call of worship. You worship the true God, the right God, and you worship him the right way. In the New Testament, look, we live in the New Covenant. The New Testament's pretty clear. You ought to gather together with God's people on the Lord's day. You ought to read the scriptures. You ought to preach the good news of the gospel. You ought to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. No, that does not mean Baptist hymnal. You sing, you worship, you should gather together to pray. You should take the Lord's Supper. When somebody gets saved, you should baptize them. That's it. God's not asking the church to be creative in, but let's add this element. It's not part of the call. It wasn't the call in the Old Testament. It's not the call in the New Testament. You worship the right God. You worship the right way. You don't listen to your heart. You listen to the word of God. Thirdly, one last thought. People who receive blessing from God and who hear from God will be held accountable for how they steward these opportunities. Romans chapter 2. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Jeroboam was not looking to be a king. Somebody just showed up one day from the Lord and said, you're the guy, God's going to give you a kingdom. All you got, he's just going to give it to you. You're a slave. You're a servant. You're a nobody. He's just going to give it to you. Look, he took David from the sheepfold. He can take you from the construction site. He's going to give you a kingdom. All you got to do is listen to God, obey the Lord, follow the example of David. You do that, God will be with you, and he will build your house. Just opportunity drops right in his lap. But he's afraid He's afraid he's not going to have that opportunity long enough or he's afraid the people are going to leave him. He follows his heart instead of listening to the word of the Lord. And in the end, this house that God promised to build gets burned down by God himself. And you read with me what the Lord said. He said, I'm going to burn it down like dung. That's what God thought about all that innovation. It's just worthless trash. And he's going to burn it down. God sent prophets to warn him. God was patient. He was kind. 
His forbearance was on display. These prophets came to warn him. Came in chapter 13, came in chapter 14. Some of the minor prophets showed up. They said, you got to stop. You're going down the wrong road. Why did God do that? Romans 2.4. His kindness, his forbearance, his patience are all meant to lead you to repentance. And he wasted the whole opportunity. Now, I don't expect living in New Covenant that a prophet is going to approach you tomorrow and offer to give you a reconstituted Confederate States of America and say, you're going to be the president. I'm just going to give it to you. It's coming. Part of me kind of wishes that might happen. We might have some change in the country. I don't know, not the slavery part at all, but, you know, it's not going to happen. This is not how God speaks to his people today, but this is what I know. Y'all are the Wednesday night crowd. You are the Wednesday night faithful. Most of you, I'm looking around the room, I saw you on Sunday. I mean, Sunday, there's nothing creative about it. We sang, we talked to the Lord, we opened the Bible, we said this is what the Word of God says, this is what we think it means for your life. You heard from the Lord. It wasn't through a prophet showing up promising to give you a kingdom, but you heard from the Lord. You've heard from the Lord tonight. It's not the most exciting story in the Bible, I realize that. It's kind of a depressing story. It's about a guy who just flushed everything that God gave him right down the toilet. But you've heard from the Lord, right? The greatest thing that you hear from the Lord, the greatest blessing that you receive from the Lord is the gospel itself. It's the truth that there is one true God who ought to be worshipped and he's absolutely holy. And it's the honest truth, whether you want to hear it or not, that you're a sinful person and you have fallen far short of his glory. But he's patient and he forbears with sinners and he is kind to his enemies and his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. And that's possible because in the fullness of time, God sent his son, the king of kings, not just to crush you and burn down your house, but to be crushed for you and to bear your sins on the cross. And the call on your life is very simple. It's an opportunity set right in front of you. I told Jeroboam, all you got to do is listen and do what David did. I got to do is listen to the good news of the gospel, turn from your sin, agree with God about your sin, and believe the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. That's all you got to do. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's an opportunity set right in front of you. And I look at the Wednesday night crew and I say, you guys not only hear it on Sunday, but you also hear it on Wednesday. God sets that opportunity right in front of you. What will you do with that opportunity? You can waste it. It's not hard to waste it. It'll have consequences for you and for your family, for this church, for this town, for generations to come. There are consequences. His patience, his kindness, his forbearance is meant to lead you to repentance. That you would turn from your idols and yourself and that you would trust in Jesus as the king. Don't waste that opportunity. All right, that's Jeroboam.